Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Thank you all for coming tonight. <clears throat> My talk is entitled Science, Philosophy, and Theology, Their Distinction and Interrelationship. In this brief talk, <clears throat> I will treat the terms science, philosophy, and theology, and then discuss their distinction, and finally, their interrelationship. First, science. In modern and contemporary usage, science is a term used to signify a discipline or a study that proceeds by examining empirical evidence, that is, what can be sensed or measured, in light of a hypothesis to be tested with special concern to formulate, when possible, one's findings in mathematical terms. Thus construed, science studies being, that is, things that exist, that are material, that is, able to be sensed or measured, with a special focus on the quantitative aspects of that being. In classical, especially Aristotelian usage, this is in distinction from the modern and contemporary usage, science, in Latin scientia, in Greek episteme, is a habit of mind by which the object under consideration is known in its causes by way of demonstration, yielding certitude in the knower. Aristotle puts it like this. Here's a quote from his work, Posterior Analytics, in which he articulates his ideal of a science in the classical sense of the term. Quote, we suppose ourselves to possess unqualified scientific knowledge of a thing, as opposed to knowing it in the accidental way in which the sophist knows, when we think that we know the cause on which the fact depends, as the cause of that fact and of no other, and further, that the fact could not be other than it is. Consequently, the proper object of unqualified scientific knowledge is something which cannot be other than it is." End of quote. In the classical sense, the object under scientific consideration need not be material, and that's different from the modern sense. Uh, but it could, include, uh, it could include material beings, though. It certainly could. For Aristotle, others like Aquinas, Bonaventure, Scotus, for example, more precisely, a science is an intellectual habit that perfects the human mind. It is a habit of knowing conclusions perfecting the intellect in its grasp of the truths which are derived from self-evident first principles by demonstration. It is a habit of mind whereby the object of study is known through its causes, the efficient material formal and final causes, by way of demonstration, specifically the syllogism. The ideal of science, then, in the classical usage, is attained when the syllogistic demonstration concludes with certitude. That is, the knower knows that the conclusion is true and cannot be otherwise. That is, it cannot be false. An example of a scientific syllogism is all men are mortal. That's something arguably self-evident. Once you know the meaning of the terms, you know they must go together, and you know the essence of what it means to be a human. All men are mortal. 
Socrates is a man, therefore Socrates is mortal. That's a classic example. Uh, note once again that in the classical definition, a science includes but is not limited to knowledge of material beings. Moreover, the principal focus of science in this older sense is to arrive at an understanding of the natures or essences of the objects under consideration. The nature or essence of the elements, plants, animals, humans, angels, perhaps even God, maybe not his essence, but that he exists. The purpose of an ideal science in this older sense is to show the essential properties that follow upon the nature that's understood. The quantitative features, which figure largely in modern science, the quantitative features of material beings are not ignored by classical science, but they are understood to be more often than not accidental attributes as opposed to essential properties. Uh, attributes of things with objective natures. For example, a quantitative uh, accidental attribute would be, be two, uh, two, foot, two feet tall, right? That's not essential to being a human, though sometimes some humans are two feet tall. It's not essential. When you're little, you're two feet tall. Uh, <clears throat> but in this classical sense, science is looking for what's essential. Certitude in the classical sense, then, is attained when one arrives at a correct understanding of a thing's nature, for example, of man as a rational animal, who, because he is a living bodily being, is mortal. And then, through a deductive syllogism in the first figure, and it meets other requirements, concludes to something that necessarily follows from this knowledge. Starting with self-evident first principles, a classical science deduces what follows from those principles with necessity. And self-evident propositions are, arguably, all about natures. This classical definition of science includes both philosophy and theology. And thus, theology has been classified as a science, as have some of the principal branches of philosophy. Many medieval Aristotelian thinkers, in particular St. Thomas Aquinas, distinguished three kinds of natural or philosophical sciences and one kind of divine science. First, physics, the object of which is material being in motion or mobile being. Second, mathematics, the object of which is number or quantitative being abstracted from matter or motion, and motion. Third, metaphysics, the object of which is being as such, being qua being, apart from the consideration of whether or not it is material or mobile. And fourth, <clears throat> a divine science, the divine science, sacred theology, the object of which is the ultimate source of all being, God, who, though he may be known naturally, at least his existence in metaphysics, here is supernaturally known in divine science or theology by faith in divine revelation. But it's important for us briefly now to back up and ask the question, how did the term science change in its signification from the classical to the contemporary usage? Well, the roots of this change, at least relatively proximately speaking, are found in the rise of medieval nominalism and the empiricism of the Franciscan philosopher-scientist Roger Bacon. But the short answer, the quick answer, is given with great clarity by Isaac Newton, the 17th century father of modern science, 
just as Aristotle's often considered the father of classical science. Uh, Isaac Newton introduces his monum opus, the Philosophiae Naturalis Principia Mathematica, the mathematical principles of the philosophy of nature, by saying this, quote, the moderns, rejecting substantial forms, that means natures or essences, and rejecting occult, by occult he means hidden, not demonic, uh, rejecting occult qualities, have endeavored to subject the phenomena of nature to the laws of mathematics, end of quote. Uh, with the historical rise of, of nominalism and the opinion that either man cannot know natures and essences or that things do not have natures or essences, modern science, in a certain respect, despairs of certitude regarding knowing the natures of things and instead, very often, seeks its certitude by examining the quantitative, measurable aspects of material beings. Non-material beings are not quantitative nor empirically measurable. And thus, at least to some extent, the kind of certitude that modern science affords us is reduced to mathematical knowledge, only to a certain extent, not entirely. This development is at once both a tremendous advance in one respect and a tragic regression in another. While the development and deployment of the calculus and advanced quantitative analysis in the sciences has rendered a wealth of knowledge regarding a particular but incomplete slice of material bodies in motion, the rejection of form, nature, essence, and final cause or purpose of things has had the effect of blinding man to the depths of meaning and purposiveness found in the community of material beings in the cosmos and their relationship to immaterial beings and to God himself. Now on to philosophy, that was science. <clears throat> Depending on the branch of philosophy and the school of philosophical thought, and that's a big depending on, philosophy as a whole may be considered a science in the classical sense with some qualifications. In general, realist philosophy may be described as a habit of mind whereby the object of study is known through its causes by way of demonstration. Of course, not every philosopher agrees with this definition or description of philosophy. A classical realist identification of the branches of philosophy would include, first, logic, which is arguably an art, not a science, but it might be both, but in different respects. It could be the art of right reasoning, or it could be the science of human understanding. There are other options as well. But logic first examines, depending on which philosopher you speak with, uh, natures or essences simply apprehended and expressed by something we call a term, <clears throat> such as animal. Second, logic examines propositions, which are the uniting, a proposition is the uniting or separation of discrete terms, such as animals are living beings, or animals are not immaterial, uniting or separating. And this move in logic bears upon the true or the false. 
Third, logic examines syllogisms or acts of reasoning, which are the joining of two propositions in order to conclude to a third previously unknown proposition. That's logic. A second branch of philosophy classically understood would be the philosophy of nature, unless you're a Platonist, then you wouldn't admit that that's a science. But I'm not a Platonist, so I'm gonna say the second branch of philosophy is, uh, well, maybe that's, anyway, uh, is, is philosophy of, of nature or philosophical physics. I'm kind of a Platonist in a certain respect. This is, this is nowadays called philosophical physics, the study of mobile being or material being in motion. So logic, philosophy of nature. Third, uh, third branch is metaphysics, the study of being qua being. And, and fourth, ethics, which I understand it to be an art, an art of correct human action, studying the proper ordering of human acts, directing them to human beatitude or flourishing. And though science has become distinguished from philosophy in the modern period, and that distinction is based on the reduction of science principally to the quantitative features of material being, along with the rejection of natures and essences, there are remnants in the modern and contemporary academy uh, of the classical view of science. For instance, those who receive doctorates in the modern natural or human sciences receive the title of a PhD, a philosophie doctor, or doctor of philosophy. But chemists, physicists, and biologists aren't philosophers. The, isn't that interesting? The title of, of their degree represents a residual, a remainder from the, of, of the classical view that they are philosophers in the sense that they seek certitude in understanding different kinds of material being. Third, theology. Turning to sacred theology, we first ask, what is it? Is it, it is appropriately described <clears throat> as faith-seeking understanding. You've heard that, fides querens intellectum. And yet, because faith is the basis that distinguishes theology from science and philosophy, there's a danger. The danger would be to conceive theology as a discipline that trades solely on faith, excluding or ignoring the knowledge that comes by natural reason in the sciences and in philosophy. The main objection to the claim that theology could be called a science, the main objection runs like this. There are other objections. Here's a big one. Theologians accept by faith what they do not know directly for themselves, and thus they have no understanding in the strict sense of that term even though they may have certitude because they believe in the testimony of Christ, God the Son, who is the truth and who can neither deceive nor be deceived. Now, if this were the case, then, that there is no understanding, strictly speaking, in theology, but just faith, then theology could not be classified as a science in the classical sense. It's certainly not a science in the modern sense. I guess we should make that obvious. If I've got the modern usage of the term science correct, which is a kind of mathematico-empirical investigation of, 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 of just material being, right, 
then theology isn't reducible to that. So it's not a, theology is not a science in the modern sense, obviously, right? But could it be construed as a science in the classical sense? Well, there's that objection. It only deals with faith, not understanding, so forget about it. And yet, this is not the case. Uh, for example, in the 1990 magisterial document, Donum Veritatis, uh, the Congregation of the Doctrine of the Faith produces this document approved and promulgated by Pope St. John Paul II in which we read, quote, theological science responds to the invitation of truth as it seeks to understand the faith, end of quote. Now look, the folks in the CDF and JP2, they knew that theology is not a, a mathematical empirical science where you test hypotheses and generate formulae in a lab or, or in a field. You know. They knew that, but yet they, the church continues to call theology a science, so it's important to see how that may be the case. Frankly, how that is the case. What is the grounds for the church continuing to call theology a science? Well, in responding to the objection that theology cannot be called a science, in his Summa Theologiae, St. Thomas Aquinas distinguishes between two kinds of science in the classical sense. He's not distinguishing between modern and, and classical because he was living in the 13th century. All right. But two kinds of science in the classical sense. A principal science and what he calls a subalternate or subordinate that is dependent science. In a principal science, the scientist, remember we're talking about classical science, that's someone with the intellectual habit of knowing things through their causes by way of insight and demonstration. In a principal science, the scientist directly knows the natures, the first principles, and the essential properties which follow from those natures and principles. For example, a classical physicist knows what motion is, understands matter, form, and privation in, uh, insofar as they're doing classical physics, and can conclude and should conclude that everything that is in motion is material, or that everything material is in motion. That's a principal science. Every step of the way, the scientist knows directly or through proof what they know, and they know it with certitude. But in a subalternate science, the scientist does not directly know the principles of his science in that science, but rather he accepts them, perhaps, on faith. I say perhaps because it gets tricky, but just bear with me here. <clears throat> in a subalternate science, the scientist does not directly know the principles of his science, but accepts them from, maybe on faith, from a different science from a higher science to which his science is subordinate. From there, he's able to draw logical conclusions about his subject that necessarily follow from those principles he accepts from a higher science. And therefore, his science is a true science, but it's just subordinate to a higher science. The example Aquinas uses is a little tricky. The example he uses of a subalternate science is the science of optics, but be careful. We're not talking about modern optics, we're talking about classical optics, which had several species, and the species he's talking about is geometric optics, if that, where's uh, a physicist is not here, okay. In any event, uh, in that classical understanding, optics 
is the study of how illuminated three-dimensional material beings appear to a subject who has biocular biocular vision, two eyes. Okay. Uh, the principles of optics, in that sense, right, are are drawn from a higher science, the science of geometry. Now, an optician need not know the geometric principles that he utilizes in his work of optics, <clears throat> uh, but uh, he may simply accept them on faith. <clears throat> However, that's irregular since the principles of geometry are easily knowable and opticians are required to know them. But when they know the principles of geometry, the optician is doing geometry, not optics. So optics remains as a science subordinated to this higher science of geometry, using science in a different way, huh? All right. St. Thomas continues then on that basis to demonstrate uh, that sacred theology is indeed a science, but it's a subalternate or subordinate science. It's a lower science subordinated to a higher principal science. In fact, it's the highest of sciences that it's subordinated to. Now keep in mind that the classical definition of science is a habit of mind. To what higher habit of mind is sacred theology subordinated? Some may not see Aquinas as a personalist, but here his personalism shines forth very robustly. Hmm? So the question again is, to what or rather to whose habit of mind is sacred theology subordinated? It's subordinated to the science of God and the blessed. In other words, God is a scientist in a loosely classical sense because he has a habit of mind whereby he knows himself directly and everything else that's related to him. He directly sees the principles and the conclusions of his subject. The subject here being the divine essence itself and everything else insofar as all creatures are related to the divine essence as both flowing from God in an act of creation and returning to God and the return varies from creature to creature how they return to God. The earthly theologian does not and cannot have the direct vision of the object of his science, namely God. With almost no exception, just that can't happen when you're on, on the earth. Now, he may and ought to know that God exists through philosophical demonstration, but he cannot know directly by intellectual insight the essence of God. This knowledge is reserved for those who enjoy the beatific vision. But the Father sent his Son, Jesus Christ, who speaks not of what he's heard from others, but of what he sees and has heard in the bosom of the Father. John chapter 1, verse 18 Quote, no one has ever seen God. The only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has made him known. End of quote. Theology is a science that starts with faith in someone's claim who himself doesn't have faith. He's seeing, he's knowing what he's telling us, and we believe it. It's not unreasonable. We do this every day on a natural level. I believe that the paycheck I get, there's actually money in the bank behind it. I don't see it. All right. Or the money that I give, you know, okay. The bank still has my money. 
in order to give it. All right. The theologian, by his faith in Christ's teaching, which is infallibly true, believes the first principles of theology, which God and the blessed know and see directly. We believe it. They see it. Thus, the theologian is like an optician who believes the geometer, thus receiving by faith the first principles of his science of optics. The first principles of sacred theology are the articles of faith which point to realities that are and are seen by God himself and which are, which are revealed definitively by the Son of God incarnate. The faithful theologian is able to draw conclusions that necessarily follow from these principles. And it is in this way that sacred theology is a science in the classical sense, albeit a subalternate or subordinate one, subordinate to the higher science of God and the blessed. You say God's science, God is a scientist. You have to realize it's the classical usage. God has, uh, God possesses knowledge. It's not exactly a habit for God, but for us it's a habit of knowledge. Theology may be defined then as a subalternate science whereby the object, which is the triune God and all creatures as they relate to God, whereby the object is known by reason, enlightened by faith. Reason's not left aside. Reason's at the heart of theological work. It's just not the beginning and end and kind of some total of it. All right. Fourth and finally, both distinctions among the uh, sciences, philosophy, and theology, and their interrelationship, fairly briefly. <clears throat> the distinctions between science, philosophy, and theology may be summarized in two different ways. Uh, I think principally because we're talking about uh, science either classically understood or in the modern sense of the word. So I think in order to distinguish science, philosophy, and theology, we have to do it twice. Once when we use the word science to mean what it used to mean, and again, a second time using science what it, uh, as, it means as it's used to mean now, in its current signification. So first, in the classical uh, sense, Science is a habit of mind, and philosophy, with most of its branches, and sacred theology are both sciences in this sense. So they're not really distinct from science. They're specific kinds of sciences. Philosophy and theology are kinds of sciences. They're not really distinct, except insofar as one species of primate is distinct from another species of primate, but they're both primates. The ancient and medieval studies of mathematics, material bodies in motion, that's ancient and medieval physics, living material beings, that's ancient and medieval biology, the mixture of the elements of matter, that's ancient and medieval chemistry, where that table had just about four things on them. Uh, the psyche, the ancient and medieval study of the psyche or the soul of material beings that are alive, often called rational psychology. Uh, and the ancient and medieval study of being as such, metaphysics. They're all sciences in the full sense of the classical use of the term science. These studies were all classified in general as philosophical and scientific. But what distinguishes all of these philosophical sciences from each other are both, A, the different objects under consideration, 
They're considering quantity in math, or mobile being in physics, or living material being in biology, et cetera. So that's one basis of distinction. They're looking at different kinds of being or being uh, uh, in, under different aspects. And secondly, what distinguishes them one from another is the different degree of abstraction that the mind performs in order to consider these objects from different points of view. So for example, it's looking at, let's say, material being as quantified or as mobile or as living. And in order for the mind to grasp that, see, it's very personal focused here. There's different kinds of human abstraction in the intellect to uh, consider one aspect of a material being abstracting it from the other aspects that you're not considering in that science. That's the short way to say it. Sacred theology is also a science in the classical sense, and therefore there really isn't a distinction between sacred theology and science in the classical sense, uh, insofar as it is subalternated to the divine science of God and the blessed, as I described a few minutes ago. Now, it is distinguished from the other philosophical sciences insofar as it begins and proceeds from the point of view of supernatural faith in divine revelation, and that's what distinguishes it from all other scientific pursuits. Only theology proceeds from supernatural faith and divine revelation. That's what sets it apart from the other sciences. Note that in both philosophical physics and in metaphysics, the existence of the one God, understood as a prime mover, is known by demonstration, moving from created effects, like moving things, to their uncreated source, an unmoved mover or a prime mover. But God, so though God is known classically in philosophical physics and metaphysics, God cannot be known in any philosophical science as a trinity of persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who are the one God. Nor is it possible to know the truth of the incarnation of the Son, the supernatural end of man, the efficacy of the sacraments that Christ established, etc., by natural reason alone. It's not available to us. Thus is theology distinguished from the other sciences, classically speaking, as it proceeds from the point of view of supernatural faith and divine revelation. All right, let's get to the good stuff, because we're not in the classical period anymore, medieval. We're in the modern period. So by way of contrast, in the modern and contemporary sense, science is commonly distinguished from philosophy and vice versa. To definitively determine whether this distinction is fortuitous or true, is a question for another discussion. For better or worse, the lines of demarcation are commonly drawn such that science, roughly speaking, signifies a mathematico-empirical discipline in which hypotheses are generated, tested, and verified or refuted, if not with certainty, then at least with the greatest degree of probability that we can attain. For its part, realist philosophy still today seeks knowledge of the essences of things as opposed to modern science, arguably, uh, essences of things and certitude in its conclusions. But there are many schools of non-realist philosophy in the current milieu. And finally, theology is distinct both from modern science and from philosophy insofar as its principal object is the triune God and its point of view is that of supernatural faith and divine revelation. And lastly, the interrelationship between science philosophy and theology. Both philosophy and science study existing things, seeking to understand being, existing things, from different points of view, 
is common to both science and philosophy in the modern sense. It's what unites them. It's how they're integrated. They're looking at reality together from different points of view. The natural sciences seek to understand material being often, but not only, in its quantitative aspects. Philosophy, at least realist philosophy, seeks to understand material and non-material being. Both disciplines undertake their studies utilizing the human powers of sensation and natural reason. A sacred theology, for its part, also studies being, existing things. So there's a point of, of, of integration there with science and philosophy, which also study existing things. The very same things that other disciplines study from different points of view. It also, theology also uses human powers of sensation and natural reason. All created being, created existing things, whether they're material or non-material, all of them proceed from God and are ordered back to God. Nothing truly known by natural reason whether in the sciences or in philosophy, is foreign or anathema to theology. In fact, in order successfully to achieve its very mission, namely faith-seeking understanding, theology must make use of the tools of natural reason, of all the tools of natural reason, as the church teaches, uh, both in Donum Veritatis, the document I mentioned earlier, but especially in Pope St. John Paul II's Fides et Ratio, a beautiful, uh, explication of the interrelationships. This is one of the reasons that theology has traditionally been called the queen of the sciences. She uses, even depends upon, philosophy and the sciences and as handmaids in her ongoing task of understanding what God has revealed. Now if wisdom is properly understood as the knowledge of the highest things in their highest order, then the natural sciences in the contemporary sense and realist philosophy begin the human mind's ascent to wisdom. Absolutely indispensable. But as St. Bonaventure argues in his commentary on Peter Lombard's sentences and in, his great, and in his great work, The Itinerarium, The Soul's Journey into God, Bonaventure argues sacred theology is wisdom in a fuller sense as she ascends through the created order. She retraces the footsteps of the natural sciences, what we now call the human sciences, philosophy, she ascends through the created order to the triune creator himself. And she, as she, and she does so by participating by means of faith in the eternal perspective of God, contemplating the marvelous order of his creation and divine providence in human history, the climax of which is the incarnation of God the Son and his sacrificial redemption of mankind on the cross. Theology has as its principal object the triune God who is infinite being, uncreated being, being in a fundamentally different order than creatures. The study of the triune God and his deeds in the created order begins in the light of faith for theology, and the human reason, enlightened by faith, is enabled to know truths about God otherwise unavailable to the human mind. And thus it is that theology, as the queen of the sciences, provides us with the ultimate principle of integration for science philosophy and theology, if I may say so, 
For as both St. Bonaventure and St. Thomas Aquinas teach, and this is taught in fact by the great fathers and doctors and saints of the church and by the church herself, the ultimate purpose of all human knowing in all of its forms and species and beautiful spectrum, and therefore of all proper human education, is to know all things in the light of Christ, to come to know and love Christ himself, to know and receive his love for us, and to receive the gift of eternal life, which is our direct share in the vision, in the very science, in the classical sense, of God and the blessed, as our Lord taught us, as John writes in chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, to know you, Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. Thank you. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.